Welcome to Verified Rx, your prescription for success. Brought to you by the Vizient Center for Pharmacy Practice Excellence. Evidence-based medicine, known as EBM, is a well-ingrained approach to supporting patient care and was first introduced at the end of the last century. Recently, anecdotal experiences entered the chat, and there has been a push by some to lessen reliance on EBM. I'm Gretchen Brummel, Pharmacy Executive Director with the Vizient Center for Pharmacy Practice Excellence and your program host. Today, I'm joined by my Vizient colleagues, Dr. Stacy Lauderdale, Senior Director of Drug Information, and Dr. Kyle Holting, Senior Manager of Drug Information, who will give us their perspective on this trend and helpful guidance for how to swing back the pendulum. Welcome back, Stacy, and welcome to the podcast, Kyle. Thanks for having us. Yeah, Gretchen, great to be back. So tell me a little bit about your backgrounds. Kyle, why don't you jump in first? My residency training included a PGY-2 in drug information, which is now called the Medication Use, Safety, and Policy Residency. My prior background to joining Vizient was as a clinical pharmacy specialist of drug information and drug policy at a large academic medical center. My interest in EBM stemmed from wanting to understand why we use certain medications over others and how we came to those decisions. In practice, EBM guides our formulary decision-making process and highlights the importance of literature evaluation as it relates to patient care. I also completed a specialized residency in drug information, but compared to Kyle, I'm a bit of a dinosaur, so I didn't get that cool medication safety component in mind. After I completed my residency, I actually went into academia and taught drug information for four years. During that time, I worked at a fee-for-service drug information center where we provided formulary support to multiple health systems. After that, I transitioned into the GPO world. I really became interested in evidence-based medicine when I was a student. It was during my therapeutics classes that I learned that practice was ever-evolving, and if I didn't learn how to critically analyze literature, I was always going to be behind. That's when my passion for evidence-based medicine developed. Very interesting backgrounds. Frame this for me. How is EBM defined and really how did we get here? Archibald Cochran is largely considered the father of evidence-based medicine. And I'm sure for some of our listeners, they'll be like, I recognize that name. Cochran Reviews and Cochran Collaboration are actually named in honor of Archibald Cochran. Archibald Cochran in the early 1970s published a landmark book where he really challenged practitioners to a paradigm shift. At that time in medicine, a lot of treatment decisions were based on expert opinion only. And in this book, Archibald Cochran said, we should really be basing treatment decisions on evidence from rigorous controlled clinical trials. After he published this landmark book, there began a paradigm shift in medicine from expert opinion to really looking at evidence within the medical literature. It wasn't until the early 1990s that the term was coined evidence-based medicine for using the medical literature for making treatment decisions. In my opinion, evidence-based medicine really consists of three core pillars. The reason I want to point this out is because a lot of times practitioners forget that there's three pillars when you practice evidence-based medicine, and maybe they embrace one or maybe two, but maybe not all three. Evidence-based medicine embraces not only the medical literature, but clinical expertise, and lastly, knowledge of the patient, so that when you marry all these three pillars together, you provide the best patient care. That's a fascinating history. Bringing us back to the current state, Kyle, why is this issue so important, especially right now? 
The COVID-19 pandemic highlights this perfectly. More than any event in the last five decades, this pandemic has been the biggest challenge to EBM. And the real question is, did we pass the test? And I think we would all agree we got the job done, but we could have done better. The COVID-19 pandemic is unique in several aspects for a number of reasons, the first being the rapidity at which clinical trials have been initiated by national and international organizations, the volume and speed of dissemination of investigator-initiated research, and the outsized role of media in the interpretation of these studies. To put things into perspective, it's estimated that between January and April of 2020, around 6,700 COVID-related preprints were posted. These preprints are reports of work which have not yet been peer-reviewed. The running figure is an estimate of 39.5 COVID-related preprints are posted per day, and that's in comparison to one preprint per 10.5 days during the Ebola outbreak. Given this environment, it's extremely necessary to know how to critically appraise the literature. Oftentimes throughout the pandemic, Kyle and I have joked with each other that evidence-based medicine died during this pandemic, or at least on Twitter it did. I'm an avid Twitter reader, and I can tell you it absolutely died on Twitter. But some of the headlines that I've read during the pandemic have been really surprising and have been based on low-quality evidence. Early on the pandemic, we embraced some treatments that were definitely based on low-quality evidence. And it might be that evidence-based medicine was on life support prior to the pandemic, and maybe the pandemic just really expedited its death. And I can tell you, as being a former instructor to evidence-based medicine, it by no means is anybody's favorite class during pharmacy school. The pandemic made me realize that we have to revive evidence-based medicine because patient care and the quality of patient care depends heavily on embracing the medical literature. I'm glad we have you two here to resuscitate EBM. And with that in mind, what are some basic tools that every EBM reviewer should have in their toolkit? We want to hit on a couple of basic concepts, the first being the importance of study design, relative versus absolute measures of effect, the p-values, and surrogate versus clinical outcomes. This is not comprehensive. This is a primer only. Hopefully, Gretchen, you will invite us back and we can delve a little bit more into some additional EBM principles. Yeah, we are hoping that we will be compelling enough for your listeners that we can delve deeper the next time. Let me go ahead and kick off our little primer with study design. Study design is kind of the most basic assessment you can have of a study. What has been most surprising to me during this pandemic is that we have forgotten that. A couple of weeks ago, the New York Times had a headline that stated, COVID may increase the risk of diabetes in children. And as a parent, that is an extremely alarming headline. As an evidence-based practitioner, I said, I'm going to go pull that study and read it myself and see if I come to the same conclusion. This study appeared in the MMWR and I read it. Basically, my conclusion was, I don't know whether or not COVID-19 causes diabetes in children, but this particular study, due to its design, cannot provide the definitive evidence. How did I decide that using evidence-based medicine principles? The study was a retrospective observational cohort, which is not surprising for this type of study. Patients weren't randomly assigned to treatment groups. When patients are put into specific cohorts or groups based on a particular characteristics, in this case, whether or not they had a COVID-19 diagnosis, what can occur is there can be differences in baseline characteristics when you're not randomized to treatment. We all know that baseline characteristics, if there are differences in them, especially in key ones, can influence the outcome that you're looking at. 
Looking at the study a little bit further, it was interesting the investigators did not distinguish between type 1 and type 2 diabetes. And that is extremely important since we know in pediatric patients, type 1 is usually the result of an autoimmune condition and can likely be caused by a respiratory virus, whereas type 2 is more likely to be due to obesity. When I realized that they didn't distinguish between type 1 and type 2, it became very important to look at obesity rates between the two cohorts. The investigators admitted in their limitation section that they didn't consider obesity they had no idea if the obesity rates differed between cohorts. My takeaway conclusion was, I'm not sure if COVID-19 causes diabetes in children or if increases in obesity during the pandemic led to increased rates of diabetes. The learning point here is always look at and understand the limitations of study design. Randomized controlled trials are absolutely the gold standard for establishing a cause and effect relationship. Observational studies are not bad in themselves, but if they're poorly conducted and don't control for important confounding factors, they can only provide correlation. They cannot establish a cause and effect relationship. And during this pandemic, there have been so many poorly conducted observational studies that have tried to assume that correlation equals causation. I appreciate that example and that breakdown. What else is in the toolkit, Kyle? Next up, we have our p-value. So much importance has been placed on the statistical significance of the p-value. It, of course, is certainly important, but it is not a one-stop shop to determine clinical significance. Excluding our non-inferiority trials, a statistically significant p-value indicates there's a difference between the two interventions being compared. P-values are generally set at 0.05, meaning if the results indicate a value less than 0.05, it's safe to say the result due to chance alone is less than 1 in 20. Taking it a step further, the p-value simply tells us the likelihood that the result is not due to chance alone. Clinical significance is determined by the clinical relevance of the results. The classic example is a blood pressure medication that demonstrates a 3 millimeters of mercury reduction in systolic blood pressure. Although the result is statistically significant, is it clinically relevant? In addition to the p-value, clinical significance is determined by the study design, meaning are we looking at the appropriate group? Are we measuring the appropriate outcomes by the magnitude of difference between the interventions using the 95% confidence interval, which I would argue is more important than the p-value, and by other measures of association such as absolute risk reduction, number needed to treat, as well as many others. Taking this all into our broader view, the statistical significance is important, but to determine clinical significance in that aspect, we need to look at clinical relevance as a whole. It's definitely important to highlight the difference between clinical and statistical significance. Stacy, what else is there to consider? One of my favorite topics, Gresham, is measures of effect. I want to spend a little bit of time today talking about the differences between relative risk reduction and absolute risk reduction. They're both accurate, but really in order to be able to interpret results, you need at minimum the absolute risk reduction reported. And I'm going to explain why. During the pandemic, a lot of studies have been published and no one practitioner can keep up with it all. I am just as guilty as any other practitioner of quickly reading through an abstract to figure out, is that something I want to read further? And a lot of times what I find in abstracts is they'll report efficacy in terms of relative risk reduction and harms in terms of absolute risk increases, which is a little bit misleading if you don't go further into the study and really look at both those numbers. Let me give a non-medical example to illustrate why relative risk reduction can be a bit misleading. Let's say you have a 50% coupon 
Is that a good coupon? Well, it could be, but it probably depends on the purchase price. You're exactly right. If you buy a $5,000 necklace, 50% is awesome. You're going to get $2,500 off. But if you buy a dollar pack of gum, I mean, 50 cents, sure, it's savings, but it's nowhere close to $2,500. When you think about relative risk reduction, you need to understand an event rate in your control group in order to be able to contextualize or put in perspective those results. So let's put relative risk reduction in the context of a medical study. A couple of weeks ago, molnipiravir was approved as an oral treatment for COVID-19 in patients who are at high risk of progressing to severe illness. If you just read some headlines, you would have seen that molnipiravir was associated with a 30% risk reduction of hospitalization and our death. That sounds pretty good. But what does that actually mean? In order to understand that number, you have to understand the event rate or the risk of progressing to hospitalization or death in the control group. So in the molnipiravir trial control group, which was placebo, that was 10%. So a 30% relative risk reduction would bring down that risk or the event rate to 7% in the molnipiravir treatment group. It's not a terrible risk reduction, but in order to interpret that 30%, you have to understand what the event rate is in your control group. Now, let's say that they evaluated molnipiravir in a lower risk group, and they did. Let's say the event rate in the placebo group of progressing to hospitalization or death was just 1%. Well, as you can see, that 30% reduction of 1% is not nearly as impressive. In order to be able to interpret a relative risk reduction, you have to understand the event rate or the risk of the event in the control group to understand what the treatment effect really is or to put context around the treatment effect. I always prefer to also have an absolute risk reduction included as well, because the absolute risk reduction is simply looking at the absolute difference in event rates between the control group and the treatment group. For molnipiravir, I stated it was 10% in the placebo group versus 7% in the molnipiravir group. So the absolute risk reduction is 3%, which in my opinion is much easier to contextualize the treatment effect if it's presented in this way. And another thing to add is we can calculate the number needed to treat from that absolute risk reduction. For the case of molnupiravir, our number needed to treat is 33. And of course, that's found via 1 divided by absolute risk reduction, which essentially means that 33 high-risk patients need to be treated in order to prevent one hospitalization or death. That's great context, both of you. Ultimately, our clinicians are focused on outcomes. How are things developing in this space, Kyle? Surrogate endpoints are not problematic as long as the surrogate endpoint is validated for the clinical outcome, meaning that it reasonably predicts the occurrence of a clinical endpoint. When you have a weak relationship, use of a surrogate outcome may become more problematic. Of interest, and to pull it back to the pandemic, our COVID vaccines were actually approved based off surrogate endpoints or outcomes, those being antibody titers but isn't necessarily inappropriate to use those as we assume there is a strong relationship between antibody titers and vaccine effectiveness in preventing hospitalization and death. Can you give us an example of using a surrogate outcome for a non-COVID indication? One that comes to mind would be Duchenne's muscular dystrophy. Approval of Exondus and subsequent drugs in this class have been based on the surrogate outcome of increased dystrophin production. 
It is unclear whether or exactly how much of an increase in dystrophin level can translate into actual improvement in symptoms. The benefit of increased dystrophin levels has actually never been established. With all these drugs, we must conduct confirmatory trials to establish an effect on clinical outcome. And in the interim, many are marketed for years prior to determining clinical efficacy. That leads me into my next question. What's the role of the FDA in promoting evidence-based medicine? What it means is that the agency has determined that the drug is effective for its intended use and that the product's benefit outweighs its risk if it's used according to the product labeling. That's all it means, that it is safe and effective. It doesn't speak to comparative effectiveness. I've read a lot of advisory committee transcript through the year, and some advisory committees will go down that lane. But again, all FDA approval means is that it's safe and effective for its intended use. I will give the FDA a lot of credit because, in my opinion, they have promoted the practice of evidence-based medicine. They have required robust registrational trials for approval. They have really said we need to develop registrational trials that are based on core evidence-based medicine principles, randomized controlled, double-blinded, based on clinical outcomes. In that regard, the FDA has been fundamental in promoting evidence-based medicine. I have to criticize the FDA a little bit. The FDA has to be a public health advocate. In its role as a public health advocate, it has to promote innovation. One of the best ways to promote innovation is to expedite the approval of potentially life-saving medications, either for rare diseases or for oncology. What has happened in the last couple of years is in trying to expedite innovative therapies, the FDA has really loosened the strength of evidence that's required to approve these new drugs for life-saving conditions. Oncology, for example, and I am no oncology expert, so I'm going to hit this very high level, but most of our oncology drugs are now approved via an expedited process, and the approval is based on surrogate outcomes such as progression-free survival. One of the complaints of many folks who interpret oncology literature is that oftentimes the link between progression-free survival and overall survival, which is the clinical outcome we're really interested in, is pretty weak. Some might argue there's a lot of benefit to expediting approval. You get that medicine to patients faster who may benefit. But others may say patients may be giving up on other options that may be more beneficial. So in my opinion, the FDA has been integral in promoting evidence-based medicine. But over the last couple of years, the FDA has had to relax some of its standards. That really emphasizes why the evidence-based practitioner is so important now in making treatment decisions or assisting in making treatment decisions. So by solving one problem, we've perhaps created some more challenges. Kyle, how do pharmacy and therapeutics committees incorporate EBM and where does that fit into this discussion? I think the old adage, new is not always better, provides a great framework for this topic. And FDA approval designates the drug is effective for its intended use. But how do we determine its place in therapy, specifically at the health systems we work at? PNT provides that level of evaluation by determining which medications are on formulary and designates any restrictions or criteria for use. The three general principles to review new medications in which are presented in the monograph at RPNT are safety, efficacy, and cost. So the first question, is this medication safe for our patients? It may work great, but if it produces DVTs in 20% of our patients, is this really the right medication to add to our formulary? 
Next is efficacy. It may work well, but how well? How does it compare to our current first-line agents? Is it better, worse, or comparable? It may be newer, but not necessarily better. And lastly, although not a primary driver for our formulary decision-making, what is the cost? Is it covered by insurers in our region? What is the Medicare-Medicaid coverage? Christiana Care has taken this even a step further from those three principles and have published a really interesting article that takes it one step further. They've created a scorecard to enhance the evaluation of medications for addition to formulary. The scorecard is presented with the traditional monograph, but also rates components of efficacy, risk, net cost, and societal benefit to provide an overall value. It's a very forward-thinking process and provides potential for further evolution of the standard monograph, but it still relies on those components of evidence-based medicine. Well, that's an interesting concept, and we'll make sure to put a link to that article in our show notes. What recommendations do either of you have for our frontline pharmacy staff for resources on EBM? I have two books that really sit next to me at all times. Those are Studying a Study and Testing a Test and Interpreting the Medical Literature. Those are two textbooks that I often refer to as I critically analyze literature. I would add that Studying a Study and Testing a Test is far and away my favorite book to refer to, specifically with anything related to statistics. I'd also add that Drug Information, a Guide for Pharmacists by Patrick Malone provides a great foundation for these concepts and an introduction into evidence-based medicine and provides really what you need to get started with this field. Good recommendations from both of you. Thank you. Stacy and Kyle, thank you so much for joining us today to share your perspectives. I'm so glad you could be here with us. Thank you. Thanks, Gretchen. Happy evidence-based medicine. And listeners, please join us for more Verified Rx podcasts. Subscribe today, like us, and send us your comments. We'd love to hear from you. Verified Rx is your prescription for success and is brought to you by the Vizient Center for Pharmacy Practice Excellence. I'm Gretchen Brummel. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.